here with us this morning. So thankful for your presence. So many are out because of uh, the holidays that are going home for the holidays. In fact, that's going to be the sermon next Sunday, home for the holidays. And uh, many that are becoming in to be home for the holidays as well. And so keep them in mind as well. But uh, we're so good to and so glad to have you with us this morning, especially those that are visiting with us. Thank you for coming our way. We invite you back at every opportunity that you may have. Those that are watching online, of course, we're always thankful and grateful for you and glad that you could be with us as well. There's so many that are sick, unable to be out, but we have this, this medium where they can come and uh, still be involved just by watching online as well. We're going to be looking at Psalm 122, and we want to talk for just a minute or two about creating a heart for worship. There are two spheres in the life of a Christian. The first would be our worship to God, and the second would be our work in the kingdom of God. And so today we want to think for just a moment or two about our worship to Almighty God. And really as we think about our worship to God, it's the key component in our life as a Christian. We look forward to the time that we can come together on the first day of the week to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. I look forward to it every Sunday. There are 52 weeks in the year and there's always a Sunday in every week of those 52 weeks, and I'm glad to be here. There are some benefits and byproducts, if you would, if you please. In Psalm 122, we have some characteristics or traits that I want to call attention to that I think will help us to be able to create the kind of heart for being able to worship God in that right attitude and in the truth of his word. The first thing that we notice has to do with the people who gather for worship. And this really has to do with the assembly, doesn't it? In Psalm 122, look at, again at verse 1. David in the long ago said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. In verse 4, he said, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. In these verses, there are some powerful statements that are made by Israel's greatest king, that being David. David rejoiced at the thought of being able to have that opportunity to go to worship. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that David knew that he would be in the presence of God when he was in worship. Listen again to what he said. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord to be in the presence of Almighty God. When we come to worship on the first day of the week, we are in the presence of Almighty God. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, when I think about what God said to Moses in Exodus 3 and verse 5, when God called Moses, he instructed him to put off thy shoes from off thy feet for the place whereon that thou standest is holy. Now, the ground per se was not holy, but I think what God was saying is what made that ground holy or holy place was because of his presence. 
made it holy. When we come to worship, we are in the presence of Almighty God. And I think that that's just one of the things that brought joy to the heart of David, to know that he was in the presence of God, that he would have that opportunity to commune, if you will, with God. Now there's a second thing, and that is David understood not only would he be in the presence of God, but he would be able to praise He would be with the people of God. Look again at verse 4. He said, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. There were three annual feasts that the children of Israel had observed under the law of Moses. And they would go to Jerusalem to observe these feasts. There was the Pentecost. There was the Passover and the Tabernacles. A very solemn occasion. And probably the pinnacle of these feasts would have been that Passover. But nonetheless, God's people would assemble for the purpose of worshiping. When we come together, we are literally with family, as was said in our prayer this morning. We are with the people of light, precious faith. And as Peter would talk about this in 2 Peter 1.1, and one of the great benefits of being together is that fellowship that we are able to derive But do you remember in Hebrews 10 and verse 25 where the Hebrew writer said, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another? You see, that's what it's about. Exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. You see, one of the the things that comes to my mind is when I read that verse, there is that mutual edification or that building up that we receive from one another. The exhortation. When you are present in worship, it encourages me. I believe that Mark, and Mark must have had to leave, but Mark had said that this morning in class, how wonderful it was that we can come together and be one one with another and be able to encourage one another. That's one of the great blessings of being together. It encourages me. It builds me up when I see you. And and I hope that that does encourage you and build you up when you see me as well. If you go back and you look at the early church, one of the things that, that they did is they spent time together. One of the reasons is because they were family. And, and family breeds fellowship. Luke said in Acts 2 and verse 42 that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And so our worship together affords us the opportunity as the family of God to be together. But it also affords us fellowship, communion, that we are people of like precious faith. Think about the world. In the world, so many times we are with people who don't probably like us. I, they, they, they probably don't, they don't act like us. They don't want to go where we go. They don't do what we do. And yet when we come to worship, we have the opportunity for just that br- brief period of time to be with those who want to be where we want to be, who want to do what we want to do, who want to go and act like we do. We have the same goals or aspirations. We all want to go to heaven and we want to make sure that we all make sure that each one of us go like a husband and wife team 
The husband does everything he can to make sure that his wife is in the right direction so that she has that opportunity to go to heaven. But then vice versa. She'll be there for him. She'll be able to help him in every way to keep his mind and his thoughts in the same direction. Heaven is the goal. The same thoughts, the same mindset. Our minds are in tune with one another as the family of God. In the long ago, Amos asked the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3. To know that we are with people that think like we do. Now that's, that's where another thing we see in Psalm 122 that, that is the person who is glorified in worship. Listen to it again to David. He says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The Lord's house. Again, verse 4, whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. You see, the aim of our worship is Almighty God. Everything that we do in worship revolves around our God. The psalmist in Psalm 95 and verse 6 says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The word worship means acts of reverence to deity. God is the one that we honor in our worship. God is our aim. He's the object of our worship. John in Revelation 1 or Revelation 4 in verse 11. Here we have a picture of the throne room of Almighty God and He said, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure pleasure they are and were created. In chapter 5, in verse 13 of Revelation, we have a picture of the throne room of the Lamb. and, And again, He says, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto Him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. You know, sometimes... When we come to worship, and I would freely grant that we miss the aim of worship, because sometimes we live in a world today in many respects where people are out of tune when it comes to worship. They misunderstand the object or the aim of worship. Have you ever thought of, about the simplicity of New Testament worship? It's very simplistic when we come to worship Almighty God We engage on the first day of the week in five acts of worship. And these five acts of worship are directed to Almighty God. But sometimes people come to worship, and particularly when they come to the services of the church, that one of the things that stands out is that we don't have a choir. Or we don't have a piano or an organ. There are reasons for that. That we do not have somebody singing a solo. We don't have a praise team. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because every one of us is the praise team. All of us. But who is worthy of our praise? Not you and not me. But God. God is worthy of our praise. You see, Paul said in Colossians 3... In verse 16, that we sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Our singing 
for example, is directed to Almighty God, there is that vertical aspect of our worship. Now, I would grant that the benefits to us as worshipers is that we're able to sing and make melody in our heart unto the Lord. But we're also speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are teaching and admonishing one another, edifying and building up, if you will, by the things that we sing. And so there are benefits, some benefits to us. <coughs> but ultimately, our worship is directed to God. As we think about God and the fact that He is the object of our worship, let me give you some reasons why we ought to direct our worship to God Himself. Number one is because He's our Creator. He's our Creator. The psalmist in the long ago in Psalm 100 said, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that had made us and not we ourselves. God is my Creator. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 12 and verse 9 said that He's the Father of my spirit. You see, God made me. God made you. In His own image. And in his own likeness, Genesis 1, 26 and 20. To know that I have been made by the loving hand of the almighty Father. And then to think that he has created this universe for us to dwell. Until the time that we can be with him. He has allowed me the privilege of being able to enjoy his handiwork as was also mentioned in the prayer as well. Then I think about God not only as my creator, but the Bible says that he is my sustainer. He sustains us. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, he's upholding all things by the word of his power. God is the one who's holding our universe in check. He's our creator. Yes, he is our sustainer. But then there's a third thing. He is our redeemer. Behind the redemptive plan is God. God is the architect of that redemptive plan. You go back and you look at the garden or at the children of Israel. The children of Israel had enjoyed redemption by the hand of Almighty God because God was the one that created a plan of redemption. His plan was in a place before he ever made man. And in Genesis 3 and verse 15, following the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God had that plan ready to execute. And so in verse 15, we have the unveiling of the promised seed. And throughout the Old Testament, bit by bit, piece by piece, God begins talking about the coming of the Messiah. That is the Lamb of God who would be slain before the whole world to see. A slain, John said that he was a, a lamb slain before the foundation of the world in Revelation 13.8. To know that God cared enough about me as a member of the human family to make a plan of redemption. And so I can enjoy those blessings of forgiveness. You can enjoy the blessings of forgiveness because of that. To be able to know that I can be cleansed and redeemed by the very blood of that precious lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so, yes, God is my creator. He is my sustainer. 
He is my redeemer and then he is my benefactor. And when I think about directing my worship to God, one of the things that comes to my mind is the fact that every blessing that I enjoy in this life comes from only one source, and that's God. God is the one who has blessed us richly with all. James said in James 1 and verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Do you remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 68, 19? Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. And then Paul in Colossians 4, verse 2, which they continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians 5, in verse 18, Paul said, In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Worship affords us the opportunity to be thankful to him. I'm worshiping God because I understand that he is the source of every blessing that I enjoy. Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, 25 said that God giveth to all life and breath and all things. Everything that you have comes from Almighty God. A loving God. And when we come to worship, we're coming before the one who is our creator, the one who is our sustainer, the one who is our redeemer, but also our benefactor. He has blessed us richly. Now God is the only object of our worship, but God is the one who orders our worship. You know, under the old covenant, God directed the children of Israel on how that they should approach him and worship. And you can go back and you can look at the patriarchs. You can read about the mosaic economy system and dispensation. And then you can come to the Christian dispensation. And under every dispensation, God has always, always directed his people on how they will worship him. We're not to worship him in the way that the patriarchs did. We are not to worship him in the way that the, most, the, the people of, of Israel worshiped him. We're to worship him and how he has directed us through the New Testament under that new covenant that had better promises through which Christ died for. God has never given man the latitude to dictate how or he or she will worship God. You see, Jesus said, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, 24. How? In spirit. That's with the right attitude. And in truth, that is by his authority. God is the one that directs us. We have talked about the five acts of worship, but who decided on these acts of worship? You're right. God did. God did. When you look at the New Testament, there is that simplicity of our worship. When we come together, every act is important. Every act is important. Every act involves the human heart, if you will. Let's look at the art of worship. I have to train 
my mind to engage in worship. When I partake of the Lord's Supper, of which we will do right after our sermon this morning, I'm reflecting on the death of Jesus, not the resurrection, not the burial, the death of Jesus Christ. When he was on that cross, that body that hung there by the nails driven into his, his hands and his feet, the blood that was shed when that soldier came and pierced his heart and water and blood came forth. I will be communing with God in that memorial of Jesus and his death. When I partake of that bread, it reminds me of that body. When I partake of that fruit of the vine, it reminds me of that blood that was shed. When, I, when Paul, Paul said, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. With regard to our singing, we're to sing. Paul said, we sing, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord, Colossians 3, 16. The instrument that's employed in my worship of God is my heart. Not some mechanical instrument, but from my heart. That's really the only instrument that I'm to use. And so God is the one who orders my worship to him. Paul would also say, and whatsoever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3, 17. Let me simply do it by his authority. That's what he's asking us to do. Whatever we do, everything that we do, it has a thus saith the Lord attached to it. Paul, Peter would say, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. The oracles, the commands of God. 1 Peter 4.11. That's all we're doing. If we're doing it, we're appealing to the word of Almighty God. But there's a third thing that I want us to see in our study this morning. And that's the purpose for going to worship. The psalmist here in Psalm 122, he talks about a very candid way. The purpose behind our going to worship. So look again at what he said. Look at verse 4. He said, Whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of, the Israel, of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. One reason that we come to worship is to learn the precepts of God. For you see, David here talks about the testimony of Israel. Now you, you might remember... Ezra the scribe in the long ago and Ezra taught the people of Israel and according to Ezra 7 and verse 10 he said for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments you see when we come to worship one of the things that we're doing is that we are coming to learn about almighty God I will never know all that I need to know about God. You will never know all that you need to know about God. But we're always learning until we're six feet in the ground or cast out over the property or something. We're always learning. Why is it that we preach the Bible? Have you ever wondered that? Why is it? I understand that this is one of the acts of worship. But 
what are one of the benefits of listening to the Bible being preached? Number one, preaching the Bible has the ability to save the soul. My soul. Your soul. Your soul's important. There's not another message known to man that has the unique ability to save the soul like the Bible. Paul said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1.16. You see, God's word has the ability to save your soul. And so every time we preach and teach the word of God, the hope is, is that we're able to reach the lost. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. But the message is powerful. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 2, these were his instructions to Timothy. He said, preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. We keep preaching, we keep teaching because we understand that the Bible preaching has the ability to save the soul. But there's a second reason that the Bible has the ability to steer the soul. You know, the psalmist in the long ago said that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119 and verse 105. When you and I get out into the world, we're bombarded with all kinds of information. Sometimes when we get out into the world, we find ourselves off track in our thinking and maybe off track in our actions as well. But sometimes, spiritually speaking, we find that we don't measure up. And so when the Bible is preached, it helps us to get back on track, doesn't it? To get back to the spiritual things. Because we've been in the world the rest of those six days in the worldly things. In that worldly wisdom that we were talking about this morning in class. It helps to steer me in the right direction. The intent of God's word is to lead me safely home. That's what God wants. He wants, to take, wants me to take this book and to use it as a compass to know where I need to go in that compass so I can find safely find my way home. Now in the world, there's not another book that I know of that can help keep you on track. Think about your family. Have you ever thought or have you ever had problems with your family? Do you ever get off track, if you will? with your family, with your marriage, maybe in the child-rearing process? Do you ever get off track in your relationship with other people? What's going to help you get back on track? A self-help book? Here's the greatest self-help book that is known to man. God's Word. It will get you back on track where you need to be to steer you in the right direction. God's Word has that ability. Then there's a thing, third thing that I think about. The Bible preaching has the ability to stir your soul. The psalmist in Psalm 85 and verse 6 says, Would thou revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in these? You know, sometimes my faith is not what it ought to be. Sometimes I, I wilt under pressure. Sometimes my faith is lacking. And yet the Bible has that ability to invigorate my soul. Do you ever get discouraged? Yes. 
Do you, do you ever get despondent in life? Yes. Is your life ever filled with anxiety and worry and trials and tribulations and you just feel like giving up? Well, the answer is Bible preaching. It is to encourage. It's to stir. It is to invigorate. Sometimes we miss that, don't we? In Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3, the Hebrew writer talked about the importance of running with patience the Christian race. Sometimes we, we go head first and... And then we fall, and then it's like, oh, I can't pick myself back up. But if you run with patience, the Christian life, notice what he says. He tells us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him despised the shame, endured that cross, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He said in verse 3, For consider him that endureth such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. You see, God's word can stir your soul. It can invigorate you. It can increase your faith. But then there's another thing that Bible preaching can do as well. We've talked about coming to worship, to learn the, the precepts of God, and that... It will also strengthen. It will strengthen your soul. One of the ways that we can derive strength, physically speaking, is by nourishing our body with the right foods, right? With the right kind of nutrients. We eat a balanced diet, or at least we should. And if I'm going to strengthen <coughs> my inner man, my soul, it only says that I need to feed on the spiritual things, right? The, the spiritual things. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You see, God's word can strengthen our. Look at the world. Every time you go out into the world, you're bombarded by the devil. He's got a stronghold. Boy, man, he can... Did you know that if, if I was standing up here on, on top of this pulpit right here, that you could actually pull me down easier than I could pull you up? That's Satan, who's trying to pull you down. We need to be balanced in our lives, don't we? The devil's trying to circumvent your faith. He's trying to destroy your soul. He's doing everything within his power to decrease my faith, to dampen my spirit, to discourage me, to bring me down, to destroy me. And yet, if I will take on a balanced diet of the Word of God, do you know what's going to happen? I'm going to grow stronger every day. Peter told us in 1 Peter 2, 2 that as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that you may what? Grow thereby. In 2 Peter 3.18, Peter said, But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every time that you and I come to worship, one of the byproducts of studying the Word of God is spiritual strength. And spiritual strength, well, produces spiritual stamina. The fight against the devil. You know, Christianity is not a sprint. 
It's a marathon. And we understand that marathon runners sometimes hit a wall, yeah. Sometimes they feel like giving up. But they can't afford to give up, and so they don't give up. They stay the course. In Christianity, we have the power to stay the course. You have to be strengthened. We have to do everything within our power to be as strong as we can. And so those are some of the blessings that we enjoy from the preaching and the teaching of God's, God's word. I think about the strength that we derive by studying scripture. And if we can't, if we don't study scripture, we're not going to be strong. We're not getting a balanced diet of the word of God. We won't have the stamina that we need to make it. And then there's one other thing I want us to see along these lines. And, and that is Bible preaching will secure your soul. You see, one of the responsibilities that I believe as a preacher is to give you the confidence in your relationship to God. The only way that I know to build that confidence is to show you that if you follow the word of God, if you will live according to the precepts of God, you will one day be able to go and be at home in heaven with him. Whether we like it or not, unless Jesus comes first, we're all going to feel the sting of death. It's coming, and so what I want to do is to equip you so that when you come to the end of the road here on planet Earth, that you are secure in your relationship to the Lord. So you know, without a shadow of a doubt, heaven will be your home. The most wonderful thing that could be that when you die, that you'll lift up your eyes in Abraham's bosom. Luke 16. Then you know heaven will be my home. But on the other hand, one of the worst things that could happen to you is not the death itself, but to lift up your eyes in torment in that Hadean realm called Tartarus, knowing Heaven will not be your home. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth of the people realizing that fact. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.1. He gives us assurance here. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, in other words, if this physical body gives way to death, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. How can you have that same kind of confidence? It's by this book. That's why we come to learn the precepts of God. Then do what? We worship. There's a second purpose behind our worship. And, and, and not only do we come to learn the precepts of God, but we come to lift up praise to God Look again at verse 1 of Psalm 122. First of all, notice the gladness. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Sunday ought to be the glad day for those of us who belong to the people of God. I want to say this. Unless you're out of town with your family in another state or another wherever city, I hope to see you next Sunday. I'm going to be here. My family's going to be here. And I hope you're going to be here. 
And if you are out of state or out of town, out of city, whatever, that you are in worship there on the first day of the week, we will not be closed. Home for the holidays in order to go home for eternity. Look at David's attitude. We are coming to praise Almighty God. We are coming to be in His presence. I was glad. That ought to bring gladness to our hearts. David said in verse 4, Whether the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks unto the name of the Lord. When we come and offer praise to Almighty God, we are giving Him thanks. That's one of the things that we do. We acknowledge his great blessings and then there's the fact that we come to bring him glory. Who is glorified in our worship? Not me, not you, but God. Almighty God, we come to lift up praise to him. He is the focal point of our worship. He is the reason we are here. Some of the things that we've discussed today, no doubt they interconnect. Worship is a great blessing. And I think that the challenge is to create a heart for worship. Did you know that the better that we understand the nature of God, that the better that we understand the importance of worship, the better we understand all about God, of who he is, and all that he's done for us, the better we can understand and appreciate the opportunity, the privilege of being here. Well, it may be the case that you're here today and you're not a Christian. We hope that we can encourage you to be right with God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in them should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 16 and 17. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of the living God and that God loved us enough that he sent his son into this world of sin and sorrow and sickness to die for us, to take our place on the cross? We're the sinners. We're the ones to die. Do you believe that? Are you willing to make the necessary changes in your life that reflects that belief called repentance? Are you willing to let it be known that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by confessing his name before men? Romans 10, 9 and 10. Are you willing to go down into the waters of baptism to have those sins washed away? Acts twenty two sixteen. To have the remission of sins? Acts two thirty eight. To be then added to the Lord's church? Acts two forty seven. I hope that you will. I hope that we can encourage you to to obey the gospel even this morning. You might be here already a child of God, but you wandered off, lost your way. You've lost your identity. Come back. Repent of those sins. Pray that God will forgive you. But we'd be more than happy to pray with you and for you as well. We're to sing a song of encouragement, number 89. Let that song convict you as you sing it to make things right with God. For tomorrow... Maybe too late.